Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, you're going to be having a chat about Tokugawa Ieyasu, the third and final great unifier of Japan, under whom, of course, the mighty Tokugawa shogunate would be established. Now, for those who have been following along for the last couple of weeks, you will recognise this bloke from the last few episodes. For those who have not, uh, I do recommend that you go back and listen to the last two episodes. If you haven't already, there will be a fair few characters you won't recognise otherwise. Look, it doesn't say this in the episode title, but this is more or less part three here, so be sure to get across the episodes on Oda Nobunaga and and uh, tell you Tommy Hideyoshi before, or, or, or don't, just keep listening, up to you, do what you like, I'm not here to tell you what to do, mate. But in 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 all seriousness, Tokugawa Ieyasu's story is really a continuation of Oda Nobunaga's and of Toyo Tommy Hideyoshi's, although, of course, there is a lot of overlap because uh, these blokes lived, roughly speaking, the same time. Ieyasu was effectively the last man standing, I suppose, I, I suppose after Nobunaga and Hideyoshi died. Um, and because of this, Iyasu ended up having the final say in what would happen to Japan as the tumultuous Sengoku period finally came to an end under his watch. Today, we're going to revisit this time period this uh, and the stories that we've explore, uh, explored over the last two weeks. Um, but again, we're going to be doing it from a different angle. We're going to be doing it from or with a focus on uh, Iyasu here. We'll learn about how Iyasu established himself as a, a trusted general of Nobunaga, how he chose to act when Nobunaga died, how he approached his rivalry with Hideyoshi, and, of course, the end result in this whole chapter of history when when the Sengoku period finally came to an end. Um, because in, in the wake of Hideyoshi's death, Iyasu was able to seize control of the newly unified Japan. That's kind of where we left things last week. Uh, he established a new government uh, with him himself himself well and truly in charge and this government most interestingly stood the test of time it stuck around for two and a half centuries with an unbroken line of tokugawas at the helm after iyasu how did he do this how did he make sure that his legacy unlike nobunaga's and hideyoshi's was so strongly established that it couldn't be brought undone well we'll find this and so much more out as we learn about this bloke, what he was like, how he dealt with the challenges that was laid, that were laid out before him, and ultimately how he had the last word in ending the Sengoku period. So much to get across as ever. Uh, so let's get stuck in. Time to get underway with the story of the third and final great unifier, Tokugawa Iyasu. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1543, the 31st of January. This is when the person that would go on to become Tokugawa Iyasu was born. Uh, but at birth, of course, his name was different. It was Matsudara Takechio. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've uh, become very used to name changes. Uh, but we're going to stick with calling him Tokugawa Iyasu just for the sake of simplicity. That's the name that history uh, uh, knows him as. And it's not going to be too long before he also was known by that name anyway. Anyway, Iyasu was born to Matsuda uh, Matsudara Hirotada and Odai no Kata. Uh, Hirotada was a minor daimyo. He was aligned with the Imagawa clan against the Oda clan, the clan that Nobunaga belonged to. Um, and while Iyasu ended up going on to become one of Oda Nobunaga's most valued and trusted lieutenants, their respective fathers actually fought against each other as enemies when Iyasu was young. Hirotada, Iyasu's dad, uh, called on the Imagawa clan for aid against 
Oda Nobuhide, right, Nobunaga's old man, um, and the Imagawa agreed. They agreed to help him fight the Oda clan on one condition. The condition was that Hiratada had to send his son, Iyasu, to the Imagawa as a hostage as part of the deal. Um, and this part of the deal actually was never carried out because Nobuhide had other plans. In order to uh, weaken his opponents uh, in, in the Matsudara clan, uh, before Iyasu had a chance to become a hostage of the Imagawa, Nobuhide actually kidnapped him himself and kept him as a hostage of the Oda and threatened to execute him if his father didn't submit and stop and, and stop fighting with the Oda clan. And you know what Hiratada's response to this was? His son, who had you know been on the verge of being given up as a as a hostage to the Imagawa clan in exchange for help, has just been kidnapped by the people that he's fighting against the Oda clan. The Oda clan have just threatened to kill his son, right? Unless unless he stops the fighting. And Hiratada's response is, yeah, no worries. Fine. Kill the boy. Because all that is going to do is show the Imagawa clan just how serious I am about an alliance with him. I'm not going to let anything, even the death of my son, come between me and cozying up to the Imagawa clan. And on top of this, I've got like 12 kids anyway, so I've got plenty of spares I don't care. So imagine that. Nobuhide luckily didn't kill young Iyasu. Obviously, this would have been a very short episode if he had. Um, instead, kept him as a prisoner from his heartless father. Um, and at this point, actually, interestingly as well, uh, when Nobuhide was keeping Iyasu as a prisoner, he very likely would have met young Oda Nobunaga. Uh, they were, I mean, they're both young kids. I mean, there's a, you know eight years between them. Um, uh, Iyasu was like six when Nobunaga was 14. But still, I mean, even if they weren't playing in the sandpit together, they definitely would have you know run into each other at some point. Anyway. Iyasu remained a prisoner of the Oda clan for a while, but then, before long, everything got turned on its head for this poor young bloke. Well, actually, I say this poor young bloke. One of the things I was going to say is that his dad died, and maybe it's not this poor young bloke when you know we're talking about the death of his father, who clearly didn't have very much time for his son. Maybe maybe he's actually quite happy about the fact that his dad died. His dad died, by the way, at the hands of his own vassals, uh, which I can't say surprised me all that much, given what we know about him. Anyway, um, the other thing that happened wasn't just the death of his dad, but also... Oda Nobuhide died as well, the dad of Nobunaga, um, died very, very shortly after his own father. And so this meant that uh, eventually in 1551, as Oda Nobunaga was making his move to take over the Oda clan, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, young Iyasu was traded away as part of a peace negotiation to, can you guess, the Imagawa clan, believe it or not. He actually ended up as their prisoner after all, just took, you know, took the scenic route to get there. And he remained in the custody of the Imagawa clan for the rest of his childhood and into his teenage years until he came of age when he was 14 in 1556. And then when he came of age, he went straight into the service of the Imagawa clan. So this bloke at this point really was not the master of his own destiny. Um, uh, After entering the service of the Imagawa clan as a warrior, he... Changed his name a couple of times. Uh, he settled on Matsudara Motoyasu. He got married. But uh, principally, what he did was went around fighting for the Imagawa clan. He fought in all sorts of battles. He fought against Oda Nobunaga at one point as Nobunaga continued to seize control of the Oda clan. But the most notable battle of this period between the Imagawa and the Oda is, of course, the Battle of Okahazama, this famous battle we talked about, the one that entrenched Nobunaga's reputation as a mighty warlord and saw Toyotomi Hideyoshi begin his meteoric rise through the Oda ranks. As a, you know, He started as a sandal bearer at Okahazama and then went on to, to rule Japan. 
But what's interesting about Iyasu's role in this battle is that there wasn't, he didn't, he didn't have one, he wasn't there, uh, because instead he was off fighting elsewhere for the Imagawa. But when he heard about the Battle of Okehazama, when he heard about the thrashing that the Imagawa had been given, when he heard about the fact that the Imagawa clan leader, Yoshimoto, had been killed, he realised which way the winds were blowing and he realised this was a real opportunity for him. In the aftermath of Okehazama, Iyasu, who was still known as Matsudaramoto Yasu at this stage, he approached the victorious Nobunaga and he offered him his loyalty. With the Imagawa clan torn to pieces, this was Iyasu's opportunity to break away from the clan that had, had oppressed him and, and, and held him in, in their service for so many years. I mean, you can imagine, this bloke did not have much in the way of enthusiasm for the Imagawa. He'd been a prisoner of theirs for years and years and years and then began fighting for them because he basically had no other choice. So he turned to Nobunaga as a way out and recognising an opportunity to, to recruit a valuable ally, Nobunaga accepted Iyasu's offer of loyalty, and I tell you what, I don't think he ever regretted this decision, as Iyasu proved to be a powerful and extremely loyal vassal for the rest of Nobunaga's days, as we've talked about. Anyway, Iyasu and Nobunaga, they got on very, very well indeed. Quite aside from their relationship as lord and vassal, they seem to have been good friends as well. They seem to have got on well, uh, personally speaking, which is interesting because generally speaking, Tokugawa Iyasu was an incredibly unlikable bloke. He was cunning and clever and sometimes cruel. Uh, he was manipulative and ruthless and uh, sometimes a very difficult bloke to find nice things to say about on a personal level. Of course, very effective leader. None of these things preclude you from being you know, a skilled political leader or a, or a talented uh, general on the battlefield. Iyasu didn't have very many friends, so the fact that Nobunaga was one of them, the fact that Nobunaga and he seemed to get on quite well, I mean, if you're going to make a friend, have it be one of the most important people in uh, in your country's history, for sure, and, uh, and Nobunaga certainly set Iyasu on his course towards playing his own massive part in Japanese history. Um, but as I say, they got on very well. Uh, in 1563, Iyasu's son married Nobunaga's daughter, which strengthened the personal ties between these two men, as well as the political ties between the two clans. Um, and that same year, Iyasu also changed his name again, uh, this time to, well, this time to Iyasu. So now he is Matsudara Iyasu. And with the backing of Nobunaga, he took over the Matsudara clan. He spent uh, several years cementing his position, putting down rebellious vassals of his own or mollifying them with land grants. Uh, his territory, Mikawa province, was rife with unrest, as was so much of Japan during the Sengoku period. Um, and a lot of Iyasu's attention was taken up with pacifying and, and gaining control of his realm. He squashed peasant revolts and he brought disloyal vassals into line. And, and at one point, when he was fighting on the front lines, he was actually shot several times by these newfangled gunpowder weapons that were beginning to become more and more popular in Japan. Uh, luckily, his armour was strong enough to, to protect him, but it was a sign of things to come. Harnessing firearms would be a key part of not just Nobunaga uh, and Hideyoshi's uh, military success, but also, of course, Iyasu's as well, but we'll get to that. Anyway, by 1567, Iyasu has more or less gained full control of Mikawa province, his cleaned house, um, and it's in this year that he, one last time, changed his name. Once again, this time settling on Tokugawa Iyasu. He renamed the Matsudaira clan to Tokugawa, and this marked the beginning of one of the greatest legacies in the history of Japan. Tokugawa is one of the most important and famous clans 
in Japanese history, as we'll come to. Uh, but for now, the newly renamed Tokugawa clan is still subservient to the Oda clan. They are still vassals of the Oda. Um, they're going about doing the bidding of Oda Nobunaga, going where he tells them, doing what he tells them. Um, in 1568, you may remember, Iyasu aided Nobunaga in seizing control of Kyoto before then being sent off once again to continue to conquer in Nobunaga's name. But it was in 1570 when Nobunaga's faith in and reliance on Iyasu really paid dividends because it was in that year that the Azai and the Asakura rose to challenge him, you may remember. And when Iyasu realized that Nobunaga was in trouble, he dropped everything to support his lord. He he pulled out of the, 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 the fights that he was in. He, he pulled away from the, the conflict that he was embroiled in and rushed to the side of Nobunaga to save him from the, uh, from the Azai and the Asakura as the tide turned against uh, his lord and master. And Iyasu's assistance at the decisive Battle of Anagawa, where Toyotomi uh, Hideyoshi also fought, you remember as a general, uh, his assistance was instrumental in making sure that Nobunaga won the day. This was the first major military action that saw the Oda and the Tokugawa fight side by side in this way, utilizing gunpowder weaponry to lay waste to their foes. And thanks to Iyasu and the Tokugawa, Nobunaga vanquished the Asai Asakura forces and continued his campaign to unite Japan. He may have been undone had it not been for the support of Iyasu and the Tokugawa clan. Anyway, as we move now into the 1570s properly, uh, Iyasu, he spent much of his time going after the Takeda clan on behalf of Nobunaga. Uh, this occupied his attention for, for most of the 1570s, in all honesty. The campaign against the Takeda was hard fought. It saw both sides gain victories and suffer defeats. But as Iyasu had oh, well, something of a trump card, really, the ability to call in Nobunaga and his ever-growing armies, uh, being able to call them in for support when he really needed it, uh, that was what ultimately turned the tide of the war. Uh, during the Battle of Nagashino, the one where Iyasu and Nobunaga killed about two-thirds of the opposing army with their guns, you might remember we talked about that, um, this was when the fight against the Takeda was more or less decided. Iyasu gained the upper hand, secured his victory against the Takeda, uh, but again, Took a while in in doing so, in all, in all honesty, although the end result was very much in line with a lot of other campaign that was done by Iyasu, by Nobunaga. It eventually, you know, was a dub. He he did get there and, and bring the lands uh, formerly controlled by the Takeda clan into the realm that, uh, that Nobunaga was cobbling together. And before we move now into the 1580s, uh, I mean, you know what's coming you know, you know what's coming in the 1580s, of course, the death of Nobunaga in 1582, a lot of turmoil and chaos that came with that. But before we get there, there's one last interesting detail that I want to share with you that demonstrates just how loyal Iyasu was to Nobunaga. In 1579, Nobunaga accused Iyasu's wife and their eldest son of plotting to assassinate him. Now, don't forget, Iyasu's son is also Nobunaga's son-in-law. So Nobunaga is accusing his son-in-law, the bloke who married his daughter, of wanting to kill him. And Iyasu does not muck around in responding. Remember how years ago Iyasu had been kidnapped by Oda Nobunaga's dad, Nobuhide, and how Nobuhide had threatened to kill young Iyasu unless his dad gave in and submitted to the Oda clan. And also, you remember how his dad was like, I absolutely do not care. My son is nowhere near as important to me as the 
alliances I'm trying to forge and the political ambitions I have, kill them if you want. It seems like this very cavalier approach to protecting the lives of your children was something that was passed down from father to son. Because when Nobunaga made all these accusations and said that Iyasu's wife and son were plotting to kill him, uh, Iyasu responded by executing his wife and then ordering his son to commit seppuku. Just like that. Such was Iyasu's loyalty to Nobunaga and such was apparently his disregard for his own kin, that he sent multiple family members to their deaths for their disloyalty and, of course, used the opportunity to prove his absolute loyalty to Nobunaga. This did leave him without an heir, however, and interestingly, it meant that his third son, Tokugawa Hidetada, became his heir, not his second son. Uh, He didn't like his second son very much. Uh, eventually gave him over to uh, another powerful warlord uh, for adoption. Basically, was adopted by uh, this other powerful warlord. Would you like to guess who that powerful warlord was? Did you guess Toyotomi Hideyoshi? Yes, indeed. Hideyoshi adopted the second son of Iyasu, saw him rise to become a powerful daimyo under Hideyoshi in the coming years. You just look, you really can't get away from it, mate. It doesn't matter if it's Europe or Asia or what. Aristocratic family trees all end up like bowls of spaghetti. Son number one, married to Nobunaga. Son number two, adopted to Hideyoshi. And I'm sure if there had been a fourth great unifier of Japan, they would have somehow, some way, become involved with the third son. Anyway, as we continue the story, we all know what's coming next. In 1582, the death of Oda Nobunaga during the Honoji incident. We talked about this two weeks ago. Right before this took place, Nobunaga and Iyasu, they were together. They were hanging out. They were celebrating victory over the Takeda clan. They having a great time together. But then Nobunaga gets called off to aid Hideyoshi in Bichu province. Uh, he stops off in Kyoto. He's betrayed by Akechi Mitsuhide. Now he's dead. Very sad. Hideyoshi is off seeking vengeance. You know all this. We've been over all of this. Twice, in fact. But what did Iyasu do? His position in the wake of the death of Nobunaga was an uncertain one, let me tell you. And this was, for, this was for a few different reasons. No one could argue that he was one of Nobunaga's closest and most trusted allies. But was he going to succeed him? That was less clear, especially as now his lands were potentially a target for conquest by other daimyos, now that Nobunaga wasn't around to protect him. And in addition to this, he wasn't as quick on the uptake as some others like Hideyoshi were uh, in responding to Nobunaga's death. Uh, This was a question of distance as well. He was further away, removed from the action compared to someone like Hideyoshi. And so while Hideyoshi was gathering the Oda forces and going around, feeding the left and the right to anyone who would stand in his way... Iyasu ended up taking a more cautious approach. He consolidated his own position by invading and conquering Kai and Shinano provinces, uh, which was his way of capitalizing on the general instability brought about by the death of Nobunaga. But after this, he then just waited. He just waited to see what would happen next. And the next year, 1583, Hideyoshi went to war with Shibata Katsui, who was fighting on behalf of one of Nobunaga's sons. Iyasu responded to this by doing largely nothing. He decided to sit this one out, observe from a distance, and again, see what would happen. Uh, Hideyoshi won, of course. And so then it was in 1584 that Iyasu actually finally got up and did something. He finally decided, well, I might have a bit of a crack here myself, I reckon. He found another one of Nobunaga's surviving sons. He offered to press his claim for the Oda clan leadership, which would, of course, 
bring with the de facto control of all the lands that Nobunaga had unified. So he wasn't being generous or magnanimous in attempting to put one of Nobunaga's sons on the throne. He wanted to install himself as the de facto leader of this uh, of this newly unified Japan. Um, and this was a bold move and a dangerous one as well. It was a bit of an all-in play from Iyasu because it meant that if he lost, it would probably be the end of the Tokugawa clan altogether. He himself had been responsible for obliterating and annihilating other clans that had been on the wrong side of uh, been on the wrong side of history here clans like the Takeda clan and so Iyasu knew that if he lost this battle against uh, against Hideyoshi for the future of Japan the Tokugawa clan would effectively be wiped out but as we talked about last week he didn't lose I mean, he didn't win either, but he didn't lose. He and Hideyoshi ended up in a bit of a stalemate. Both sides were so evenly matched that they they both risked their own annihilation if they tried to force the issue with a decisive all-in battle. Winning such a battle would have let, left the victor so badly weakened that they could have been easily conquered by the next daimyo to come along, so their victory would have been very short-lived. Ultimately, the two of them sat down, they talked it out, they made a peace agreement without spilling any more blood, and... That was the event that saw Iyasu hand his second son over to Hideyoshi, more or less as a as a hostage. But as I say, Iyasu didn't like this son very much for some reason. And so, yeah, again, no skin off his nose. Didn't really seem to have the highest regard for his children. Anyway, after this, after peace had been made uh, with Hideyoshi, Iyasu's position was once again a little uncertain. Hideyoshi hadn't beaten him, but he hadn't beaten Hideyoshi either. And as Hideyoshi went about in full control of Nobunaga's legacy and, much more importantly, his troops, as he went about conquering Shikoku and Kyushu, it was pretty clear who was in the more powerful position here. It wasn't Iyasu. It was Hideyoshi who was the de facto leader of an increasingly unified Japan. Was Iyasu a vassal of Hideyoshi's at this point? I don't really know how to describe their relationship. They both walked away from their fighting in 1584 and sort of stayed in this weird grey area. I think Iyasu was kind of a vassal. I mean, Hideyoshi was more or less his boss at this point, uh, especially given his continued military successes and the sheer number of troops that he had. But from what I can tell, it may have been a situation where Hideyoshi was in charge of Iyasu and able to give him orders and act as his lord, as long as he, you know, didn't actually do any of those things. In all honesty, I don't think Hideyoshi wanted Iyasu anywhere near him at this time, given that they'd been foes. It seemed like a mutually beneficial situation for them both to just leave each other alone. But whatever the reason, Iyasu and the Tokugawa, they sat out of Hideyoshi's conquest of Shikoku and Kyushu. Uh, But then, as we talked about last week, finally got involved in Hideyoshi's campaigning when it came to his fight against the Hojo clan. The last remaining powerful independent clan, the Hojo clan were based in the Kanto region. And when when the time came for Hideyoshi to go after them, Iyasu joined him as an ally. And he was richly rewarded for this as well. Because once the Hojo clan were beaten, Hideyoshi offered control of the entire Kanto region to Iyasu, in exchange for him giving up the provinces that he used to control, including his home province of Mikawa. This deal was unprecedented, radical, an opportunity for the Tokugawa clan to increase the overall land and territory that they controlled, but in exchange, they had to give up their homeland, their heartland, and move themselves off to the Kanto region. Iyasu accepted this deal. We'll talk about it in just a second, but why was it put on the table in the first place? It's thought that 
Hideyoshi wanted to find a way to marginalize and undermine Iyasu and his authority, his, his, his political relevance, essentially. And so this deal that moved him all the way across to the Kanto region was effectively trying to get rid of him in, in a way that didn't involve you know, open warfare. But whatever the case, Iyasu accepted this offer um, he, he picked up his clan, moved them across Japan and, and settled in the Kanto region, giving up Mikawa province and, and all the rest of it. And this decision would prove to have major consequences, not just for the history of Japan, but the history of the world. Consequences that we can see even today. Why, you might wonder? Well, when he moved his clan and his vassals and his troops and everyone else over to Kanto, Iyasu chose a small fishing town called Edo to establish as his new home. And in the years that would come, Edo would grow and grow and grow until it ultimately became one of the most important cities, not just in Japan, but in the entire world, as we'll come to in just a second. Anyway, after moving to Kanto, um, Iyasu went around consolidating his leadership, entrenching himself as the new leader of the Kanto region, gaining the loyalty of all the samurai that had formerly fought for the Hojo, and investing very, very heavily in his new realm over the next 10 years. While Hideyoshi was off fighting, um, quite unsuccessfully, you'll remember, uh, in Korea, Iyasu poured his time, his effort, and his resources into developing the Kanto region and his new hometown of Edo. And this proved to be a good move, a very, very good move. Let's talk about all the reasons why. First of all, as we mentioned last week, the overseas campaigns in Korea did not end up going all that well for the Japanese, led by Hideyoshi. And so Iyasu really dodged a bullet by staying uninvolved. His military might didn't weaken. Uh, he didn't send good money after bad in attempting to prop up this failing military campaign on the other side of the Sea of Japan. He did a good job of staying out of something that was, at its core, a bad job. Secondly, he was relatively isolated from much of Japanese politics over in Kanto. Uh, this was something that Hideyoshi had deliberately engineered. Uh, he had tried to move Iyasu away from the capital Kyoto to encourage his political relevance. But what this actually did was increase Iyasu's autonomy instead. He was uh, much freer from Hideyoshi's rule due to the distance from Kyoto and also because Hideyoshi was busy with the Korean invasion, meaning that Iyasu could kind of do what he wanted. Uh, and thirdly, as I said, Iyasu did everything within his power to transform his new lands into a flourishing and prosperous realm. He reformed and improved and modernized the infrastructure and the economy of this region, which kicked off a chain of events that would bring about, as I say, a massive change in world history. I mentioned before that the new seat of power for the Tokugawa was this small town called Edo. And Edo became so prosperous and so renowned, and the Tokugawa became so powerful as they ruled from Edo, that the next period of Japanese history is often called the Edo period. And as for that town, as for Edo itself, we don't call it Edo anymore. Today, it is instead known as the biggest city in the entire world, Tokyo. Tokyo is estimated to have a population that is approaching 40 million people. It is comfortably 
the most populous urban area on the planet. And the only reason for that is the fact that Iyasu made Edo, which would go on to become Tokyo, his capital, ultimately turning it from a small fishing town into the largest metropolis on Earth. Anyway, all these reasons meant that Iyasu and the Tokugawa did very, very well for themselves, enjoying political autonomy, economic prosperity, and of course, continued uninvolvement in a doomed military campaign in Korea. Iyasu was called away uh, to advise Hideyoshi on the campaign on several occasions, but he still managed to keep the Tokugawa completely out of the conflict. And as a result, as we move through the 1590s, Iyasu became the second most powerful daimyo in all of Japan, second only to Hideyoshi himself. And then in 1598, when Hideyoshi died, there was no one to stand in his way. Iyasu knew his time had come. Iyasu was very pragmatic. He had allied himself with the powerful Nobunaga. He'd killed his wife and son to prove his loyalty. He'd walked away from an unwinnable fight with Hideyoshi. He'd given up his home provinces in exchange for Kanto. He'd refused to get involved in Korea. Iyasu, generally speaking, just made very good decisions, although they weren't generally very popular decisions or, you know, particularly ethically defensible ones a lot of the time. But, I mean, look, for most of his career, as I said, Iyasu was disliked by most other people, those that he ruled, those that he fought beside, more or less everyone. But even if he wasn't a likable man because of his cunning and ruthless and ambitious nature, he was also a very patient and sensible and wise man. And this patience of his ended up paying the ultimate dividend after 1598, after the death of Hideyoshi. Because rather than go after Hideyoshi when he was alive, rather than go after the bloke who had finished the work of Oda Nobunaga in unifying Japan, this patience of Iyasu allowed him to wait and wait and ultimately strike at the right time, take the opportune moment to seize power for himself when Hideyoshi wasn't around to stand up to him. The year after Hideyoshi died, Iyasu marched on Osaka Castle, the former seat of power for Hiyoshi, and seized control of it. Hideyoshi had set up a council of regents to rule until his son came of age, but Iyasu didn't care about that. He seized power with force of arms. He made it clear that he was the captain now. He would rule Hideyoshi's newly unified Japan in his own right, whether people liked it or not, never mind the son or the regents. Um, But it turns out that there were some people who weren't the biggest fan of uh, of this outcome. There weren't people who weren't so keen on the idea of Iyasu succeeding Hideyoshi in this way, and so began to scheme against Iyasu. Uh, a bloke named Ishida Mitsunari plotted an assassination of Iyasu, but uh, when he was found out, you, you actually you, you won't believe what happened here. This is really interesting. Iyasu's generals uh, discovered the the plot against uh, against Iyasu. They attempted to capture and imprison Mitsunari as the ringleader when they found out. But then Iyasu himself allowed Mitsunari to escape safely and to live to fight another day. Why would he do this? He is in the middle of entrenching himself as the leader of a, of a newly unified Japan, and he's letting his greatest adversary just walk out the door? What's going on? It is thought that Iyasu made this decision very deliberately because in plotting to kill Iyasu, Mitsunari had become the primary figure for resisting Iyasu's new hold on power, and Mitsunari lacked the legitimacy of Hideyoshi's son. 
or his regents. He was just a guy. And so it's thought that Iyasu very deliberately wanted Mitsunari in charge of those opposing him because it would be easier to undermine opposition to Iyasu's rule because Mitsunari wasn't you know, a chosen or appointed heir or successor of Hideyoshi. And so as we approach the year 1600, Japan is once again riven in two. There are those who support Tokugawa Iyasu as the leader of Japan. There are those who support Mitsunari in opposing him. And Mitsunari, obviously, allied himself with the regents and the clans that they held sway over, while Iyasu used his seniority, his reputation, to ally himself with the other powerful clans and regional allies he had had, particularly as a former close associate of Oda Nobunaga. But as both sides built up their forces, war seemed inevitable. It was inevitable. It was only a matter of time before the Western Army on the side of Mitsunari and the Eastern Army fighting for Iyasu met in battle. And what a battle it was. The Battle of Sekigahara, which took place on the 21st of October 1600, this battle determined the future of Japan. Both armies were relatively evenly matched in terms of numbers, but you remember how I mentioned Iyasu had, like Nobunaga, very enthusiastically adopted gunpowder weapons? Iyasu had a huge number of his troops armed with arquebuses and marched his mighty army on the defensive position that Mitsunari had taken by the banks of a river. Iyasu had also done something else to aid his campaign against Mitsunari. He had been in touch with as many Western Army generals as he could find and offered them all very generous terms, positions of power and land grants, if they defected over to his side. And so with this in the back of these generals' minds, the battle began when the Eastern Army marched to attack the Western Army. Iyasu manoeuvred his troops, attacked Mitsunari's flanks, and slowly gained ground. And perhaps, just as Iyasu had planned, as the tide of the battle began to turn in his favour, many of the generals that he had contacted thought twice about their loyalties to Mitsunari and the Western Army, and then, on the battlefield, then and there, defected. They realised that the wind was in Iyasu's sails. They realised that he was going to come out on top, and so they wanted to hitch their wagon to the winning horse. And what was left of the Western Army was forced to withdraw, as tens of thousands of troops switched sides which only led to more generals defecting to Iyasu. Before long, the Eastern Army was routing the Western Army and Mitsunari was ultimately taken prisoner. The battle was over. Tokugawa Iyasu had won and now there was no one in his way. He was the undisputed ruler of all Japan. After the battle, Mitsunari and the other leading Western Army generals were publicly executed by Iyasu, uh, while all of the defecting generals were rewarded, as promised, with titles and lands, and Toyotomi Hideyoshi's son was reduced to a mere vassal of Iyasu, and he and many others had much of their lands seized and redistributed. And so, with the Western Army destroyed, the Toyotomi clan crushed, those loyal to the former regime completely vanquished, Iyasu was undisputed as the de facto leader of Japan. In fact, some historians pinpoint the beginning of the Tokugawa shogunate as the year 1600 with Iyasu's victory at Sekigahara, but officially speaking, it wasn't until 1603 that Iyasu was actually named shogun, the first shogun since Ashikaga Yoshiaki, the bloke who Nobunaga had helped out all those years ago back in 1568. Nobunaga and Hideyoshi had never received the title of shogun, 
But in 1603, Emperor Goyozai conferred it upon Iyasu. And in some ways, it's as simple as this. Iyasu was just the last man standing. He was 60 years old by now. He had outlived Nobunaga, Hideyoshi, and all the others who could lay claim to his position as leader of Japan. Iyasu got the last laugh because of his patience, his prudence. This saw him ascend uncontested as the shogun, essentially the military dictator of a united Japan. Although, hilariously, he didn't actually remain shogun for very long at all. Two years, in fact, at which point he abdicated in favour of his son, Hidetada. And you might think, well, why? He worked so hard to get to this position. Why did he give up his power? I didn't say he gave up his power. He just gave up the title of shogun. Nobunaga and Hideyoshi had showed us that being or not being shogun was largely irrelevant to the power that you wielded. After abdicating, Iyasu's position in real terms didn't change even a little bit. He was still the one in charge. His son was just a figurehead, you know, in the same way the emperor was. But still, abdicating in this way helped to legitimise Iyasu's son's position as his heir. He didn't want another succession crisis when he died. He tried to set the precedent of one Tokugawa passing down this position of shogun to another, which worked, I might add. No fewer than 15 Tokugawas ruled the shogunate in an unbroken line until the Meiji Restoration of 1868. Abdicating also allowed Iyasu to focus on the business of ruling Japan, letting his son take care of all the boring ceremonial nonsense that went with the title. So, with his schedule freed up by not having to go and do whatever the shogun has to do, what did Iyasu get up to? Well... He reformed the Japanese feudal class system. He established a system that governed the lives of everyone from aristocrats down to peasants, one that would stick around for a very long time. He also busied himself with building the massive Edo Castle in Edo, parts of which you can still see to this day in Tokyo. It went on to have the Tokyo Imperial Palace built on top of it. Some of its walls and moats are still there today. You can go and see them. Um, And in addition to this, he worked to improve Edo more generally as his seat of power, just as he'd done while Hideyoshi was in charge. He flattened hills and drained swamps and built, built canals and roads and attracted other rich and powerful nobles to build their houses and estates near the growing city, uh, a city which only continued to grow and grow and grow even after Iyasu died. Edo continued to expand and prosper, again, due to the effort that he'd made in establishing it as the de facto capital of his shogunate, even if Kyoto remained the de jure capital for a very long time afterwards. Um, He had to perform maintenance on his newly acquired realm, of course, here and there. There were those who weren't keen on him being in charge and rose to try to resist him, but they never got far, especially as Iyasu had forced all the remaining Western Army generals and daimyo to publicly swear fealty to him after marching to the coronation of the new emperor, Gomazunu, with 50,000 of his soldiers with him, just in case anyone was wondering if he was mucking around or not. But for the next decade or so, Iyasu oversaw a period of relative peace and stability as the rule of the Tokugawa shogunate began. The Sengoku period is all but over. There's just one fight left to cover. And the shogunate that replaced it as it came to an end would remain in place for over 250 years. But before we come to the last battle of the Sengoku period, there is something else that I want to talk about. Japanese foreign relations around this time and the change that they underwent as the Tokugawa shogunate established itself as the government of Japan. 
After abdicating as shogun, Iyasu was still, as I said, completely in control of the shogunate and therefore of Japan. And it was he who oversaw Japan's foreign affairs. Iyasu met with travellers and explorers and missionaries and colonists from Europe and was even on quite good terms with some of them. The Dutch East India Company had a base in Japan. Iyasu consulted regularly on European affairs with an English shipwright whose name was William Adams, who had learnt Japanese. Um, He even sent off an ambassador to Europe, as long-term listeners will remember, episode 117, Hasekura Tsunanaga, get across it. However... As European nations like the Netherlands and Spain attempted to further and further influence Japan and Japanese affairs, perhaps with a view to conquest or colonisation, Iyasu stepped up his resistance to foreign powers. He began to strongly disapprove of European activities within Japan, uh, particularly Christian missionary work. Uh, And eventually in 1614, he banned Christianity and ordered the expulsion of all Christians from within Japan. And this more or less ended European involvement in Japan and the Tokugawa shogunate and the Edo period are defined by the strict isolationism Japan entered into, particularly after the Sokoku Edict of 1635. Once again, Iyasu had a profound effect on Japan's history as he began to close up the country to foreigners, something that would once again remain in place for two and a half centuries. Anyway, I want to wrap up this little three-part episode series that we've done on the Great Unifiers of Japan by talking about the official end of the Sengoku period, widely held to be 1615, one year before Iyasu died. In 1615, Toyotomi Hideyori, the son of Toyotomi Hideyoshi, made one final attempt to claim his father's title and failed miserably. He proclaimed himself the rightful ruler of Japan and promptly had his castle besieged by the forces of the 72-year-old Iyasu. Osaka Castle fell, Hideyori and the rest of his family were killed or forced to commit seppuku, and that was the end of the Toyotomi once and for all. The downfall of Hideyori as the very last significant resistance to Iyasu's dominion over Japan marked the end, once and for all, of the Sengoku period. The time had come for the Edo period ushered in by Tokugawa Iyasu and the shogunate that he had established. But he didn't stick around to see it continue to thrive and prosper. Iyasu died the very next year in 1616. He was buried in a shrine in modern-day Shitsuoka, although his remains may have been moved to Nikko, we're not sure. Both the shrines that he may be buried in have never allowed anyone to open the graves that may contain his remains, and until they do, we'll never know for sure where he was finally laid to rest. But what we do know What we can say, without a doubt, is that Tokugawa Iyasu is one of the most important figures in Japanese history, alongside the other great unifiers, Oda Nobunaga and Toyotomi Hideyoshi. It all started with Nobunaga, who put irresistible momentum behind the unification campaign and set the stage for Hideyoshi to finish the job. But then, after Hideyoshi's death, it was Tokugawa Iyasu who built a government and a nation that would survive in strict isolation for 260 years. The Tokugawa shogunate saw Japan undergo significant economic development. It saw huge cities like Edo grow and grow. It saw the feudal system that Iyasu established govern the lives of millions and millions for two and a half centuries. The Tokugawa clan was unrivaled in its dominance of Japan all the way through to 1868, 
when the Meiji Restoration finally removed the Tokugawa from power and established the Empire of Japan. But that, of course, is another story. For now, we close this chapter of Japan's history. The three great unifiers, their lives given over to ending the Sengoku period and setting Japan on the course that it would take into the industrial era and beyond. These three men, Oda Nobunaga, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, and Tokugawa Iyasu, were instrumental in making Japan the nation that it is today. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the end of the story of Tokugawa Iyasu and, more broadly, the end of the story of the three great unifiers of Japan. I do hope you enjoyed what has essentially become a three-part series. We don't often do this sort of thing. We don't often do three-parters. I think the only comparable time was back when we got across uh, the famous battles from the Greco-Persian Wars, Marathon, Thermopylae, and Salamis and Plataea. Um, but I'd like to know what you think. It's uh, it's not always that we go so deep on on one sort of specific part of history but if you enjoy them let me know um i know there are mixed feelings on uh, on on multiple part episodes uh i know there are mixed feelings because many people write in to tell me they enjoy them and then the numbers on the back end are never as good so i'm i'm not sure i guess there are some rusted on fans who who like the deep dives but then other people find longer episodes tiresome i'm interested to hear your thoughts um in any case we're about to close out the show now, of course, with all the boring housekeeping stuff that comes your way every week. Shout out to all the people who actually sit through it and listen to it. I do want to change the housekeeping stuff somehow to keep it fresh and interesting, but it's not even this week. Uh, so let's do it quickly. Halfhousehistory.net. You can find all episodes there. Links to the merch shop, the Patreon uh, site as well if you want to support the show uh, and gain access to exclusive secret. Not secret. Again, just exclusive behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, show notes. Uh uh, uncut episodes this one oh boy this one was a struggle to get through so if you really want to hear you really want to hear what an uncut episode can be like oh boy this one was a tough one anyway um uh apart from that tell your friends tell your enemies tell people about whom you largely feel ambivalent get those numbers up gotta get those numbers up uh and i'll see you back here next week for more half house history looking forward to company then until then leaving you with a question posed on reddit this one comes to us from rocketman 350 we, of course, know that Japan's geographic position uh, on a bunch of fault lines means that uh, tectonic drift can cause all sorts of things, earthquakes, tsunamis, other natural disasters that, that devastate Japan, very sadly. And with that in mind, Rocketman350 asks, why aren't more geologists worried about Tokyo drift? Tokyo drift.